Welcome to episode four of the Passion for Dance podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about every dance teacher's favorite issue, discipline. Okay, it's probably our least favorite part, but if you own a studio, coach a school team, teach a ballet class, in any of these contexts, there's probably rules that you expect your dancers to follow. There needs to be boundaries in place as educators, but there are a few different ways to go about it. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about the different kinds of punishment and different psychological effects so you can make the best choice for you and your dance situation. Welcome to the Passion for Dance podcast. I'm Dr. Chelsea, a former professional dancer and dance team coach turned sports psychologist. This podcast focuses on four main pillars, motivation, resilience, mindset, and community. Each week, you'll learn actionable strategies, mindsets, and tips to teach your dancers more than good technique. This is a podcast where we can all make a lasting impact and share our passion for dance. Let's do this. I want to start by saying this is a challenging topic. There's no one right solution to punishment and discipline in dance. Whether you are part of a school program, a studio, private company, if you teach one class or are the person making all the decisions, there's different things to consider. So rather than telling you how to punish or when to discipline, I want to share a little bit about the psychology of punishment and learning, and then you can decide for yourself how to best apply it to your dance context. And yes, I did say the psychology of learning because that's actually what we're trying to do, right? When you are implementing a punishment, it's because you want your dancers to learn something. And I think if we consider all of this in the context of what am I trying to teach? What is the learning moment here? It can really help us guide our decision making. So all that said, punishment and discipline usually present really difficult challenges for teachers and coaches. Uh, For us, we want our dancers to be motivated and dedicated. You expect your dancers to follow the rules. I know I did, and I definitely grew up in a dance world where there were very clear rules and expectations and consequences for not following those rules. And sometimes maybe we live in a beautiful fantasy world where every dancer gives 100% effort at every practice and no one breaks the code of conduct. Everyone treats each other with respect all the time. But hopefully, I think you understand that that's a fantasy world, right? The unfortunate truth is that as an educator, you often have to discipline your athlete. So how do we go about that? Many of us choose to coach and teach with the same disciplinary approach as how we were taught. And that often includes punishment, either for the individual or, you know, the whole team or the whole company. So why do we use punishment? Because it usually works, right? It provides the desired short term result. But is it the best thing for the long-term goals of your program? So today I want to let you know about the research in psychology around punishment and performance, discipline, and mental health. And hopefully you can take this information, use it to guide your own teaching style based on the age of your dancers and your overall approach to education. The truth about punishment is that it can control and change behavior. So consider like, why do parents use timeouts or why do parents ground their kids? Why was spanking so popular for so long? And it still is in some places. We do these methods because, well, they work, but they work in the short run. In the short run, punishment usually results in the desired behavior. You put your child in timeout and then they're not going to do that again. You discipline your athlete that that day by making them run a mile. They're not going to make the mistake again, right? When you take away a toddler's favorite toy because they threw it across the room, the next day they're going to be more careful. But when you implement discipline, it's usually a short-term impact. Like what about the day after that or the next week? Usually they go back to their old ways, whether they're a young child or a teenager or a college athlete, like usually 
punishment results in short-term correction. And it only has short-term power. So of course, if it's a really severe punishment or the same punishment happens over and over and over again, it can work in the long term. But then you'll get rid of the undesired behavior, but at what mental cost? So is stopping the behavior the only reason for punishment? So pause and consider this with me. What's the point of discipline in any context? Do you want your dancers to maybe stop being late and wear the right clothes? Or do you want them to learn to respect you and the class and voluntarily show up prepared? Right? Do you hear the difference there? Right? Or do we just want them to comply? Or do you want them to actually respect you and your studio or your class or your team enough that they choose to show up prepared and ready? So we often use punishment because we want to fix the undesired behavior. And then that makes us punish the bad behavior. And then it stops. We're like, great, it worked. But again, at what cost? So if you rely on punishment, there are important psychological drawbacks to consider. So one important drawback to punishment psychologically is it can cause a fear of failure. It creates this unpleasant, aversive learning environment. And again, our our classes, our studios, our our teams are there to learn. That's ultimately the point. And a lot of punishment creates this fear of failure and makes this learning environment toxic. Coaches, dance teachers, we often assume that punishing athletes for making a mistake will eliminate those errors, but it doesn't necessarily work like that. Making athletes fear mistakes generates anxiety. It generates negative self-talk. It means you know they are constantly now worried about making this mistake in the future. All that's left is fear. And if they're so consumed with making a mistake, there's no room left to learn, right? It's true that it's probably how a lot of us grew up in the dance world. I know I did, right? The punishment was uh, for some of the different contexts that I was in as a dancer, the punishment was often like falling out of favor, basically, like there wasn't a specific consequence. But you knew if you messed up, you were going to fall out of favor of the person making the choices, right? Which means it impacted which routines you were in formations, what role you got in the ballet, like, so essentially, we were just scared to make a mistake. And that creates that toxic, unpleasant, aversive learning environment because you're creating a fear of failure and a fear of what could happen if I like barely step across the line. Again, it's not based in respect, it's based in fear. Another thing to consider psychologically is that punishment can actually act as a reinforcer. It makes a poor behavior actually more likely. And I know this seems weird, but take a toddler example again. And Think of the toddler who wants more attention, right? They uh, might scream in a grocery store for the candy bar at the checkout. And a lot of parents of young kids, like it's so tempting, they're screaming, they're making a scene, you're like, everybody stop looking at me, I look, this is terrible. So you wanna just give them the candy to make them stop. But what did they learn, right? You gave them the candy to stop making a scene, but essentially they were rewarded for the bad behavior, right? You gave them the candy after they were screaming. So they're more likely to throw a temper tantrum next time. They learned that it worked. Now, the psychology when you're with the, you know, teenagers and stuff gets a little different, but it's this happens all the time with punishment. If a teenager craves attention, even if it's bad attention, punishment can actually feel like a reward because to a teenager who maybe is struggling at home, doesn't think anybody cares, is nobody's paying attention, they just need some sort of attention. So even the negative attention and getting a punishment still feels like a reward because they take it to mean that someone cares. Generally, we use punishment when we want more effort, right? That's usually the point. 
we're frustrated by, you know, there's no effort in coming to practice prepared, or there's no effort in like physical effort during class. Um, people are being lazy, but there are so much better ways to get effort than by inducing fear. If you are disappointed in the effort at practice, so you make them go run a mile, like, are you going to get better effort next time? Probably not. <laughs> the real message is just one of, of punishment and you're not good enough. So before you choose to impose punishment, ask yourself, why are you disappointed in your athlete? What happened? What was the cause of this where you feel like a punishment needs to happen? So I want to point out that there are times when you do not use punishment or it's going to have major psychological effects. So this is true if the mistake that you're disappointed in was out of their control. Punishment is never the answer if the dancer made a mistake that they couldn't control. Uh, and off, Or maybe they made a mistake because of a lack of mental focus. And this is what I see all the time when you're looking at actual like dance mistakes. When a dancer, uh, you know, makes a mistake on the stage during a competition, or, you know, it looks like everything's ready to go, they've been great in rehearsals, and then you go out to actually do the show, and they have some weird fluke mistake. A lot of times that has to do with focus. And if we punish the mistake, then you're just going to create that sense of fear again. So instead, teaching them about mental control and being present in the moment is going to be a lot more effective in creating that long-term solution so it doesn't happen again, rather than punishing the mistake. Say, for example, a dancer makes a mistake on the competition floor. Like maybe they missed a key you know, transition in the routine and you maybe it's something you just reblocked, you had to change it and fix it, and they completely messed it up. So before you jump to punishment, stop and ask why. You know, was she focused on the turn section that's coming up next? So she wasn't present in the moment and then messed up that section. That's what a lot of dancers do is they're, you know, an eight count ahead of themselves, worried about something coming up. And so they make a mistake on the quote easy part. How many times have you seen them mess up on the easy stuff? And usually it's a mental focus problem. If you punish that, if you punish that mistake, then you're actually going to just cause that fear and stress about disappointing you in the future. Jumping straight to punishment is not going to fix the problem. Instead, it's actually going to become more likely that your dancer will make the same mistake the next time or live in fear of making such a big mistake that it becomes impossible to perform at their best ability. So that's when you don't want to think about a punishment. There's a much better way to get the result that you want. But there are times when punishment has to happen, right? So here's when you should consider punishment. When mistakes are made that are based in like the code of conduct or, you know, breaking uh, kind of moral rules rather than the skill or mistakes based on the sport. So punishment comes into play when it's kind of like making bad choices, right? So especially if an athlete makes a conscious choice to break the rules, there's consequences. Understand that punishment should only be used sparingly. This is not something that we use a lot. But when you do have to impose punishment, it's usually because of, you know, blatantly choosing to break the rules. And then there has to be boundaries, there needs to be consequences. And I am definitely a fan of educators and coaches and where teachers, you know, where it's appropriate in your context to teach these young dancers that there are boundaries, and there are guidelines, and there are consequences to not following those guidelines. So if you do have to implement punishment and it's the right context, a few things to consider, a few guidelines for you for implementing punishment to help make sure it's going to have the impact you want it to have and not cause that toxic uh, psychological environment. This episode is brought to you by the Dance Coach Membership Releve, a community for dance coaches on the rise. 
This community is designed to help you create a team of committed, hardworking dancers that are a pleasure to coach every day. I've learned a lot about coaching other coaches over the years, and one thing I know is we need clear action plans that are easy to implement and a support network around us. So I created a membership to help all the dance coaches out there who want to rise up and make a difference on their team. Head over to passionatecoach.com membership to learn more about how to join us inside this dance coach membership, where you will get the support and guidance to find a new level of joy and success in coaching. That's passionatecoach.com membership. So first guideline is to allow your athletes input in making up punishments for breaking the rules. This is going to be very context dependent and based on age, but something to consider at the beginning of a season or the beginning of, you know, company auditions, setting out expectations based on level and age. There are some rules, uh, you know, where you can actually have the team or the company come up with the punishments that they feel fits the prime. If, if it fits the crime, then, and, Often they will come up with something maybe even harsher than you might have, right? But it improves that team culture and buy-in if it's a group process and they know for themselves, like, no, we decided on this. This matters to all of us and we want to be the type of team that shows up to rehearsal prepared. We want to be the type of group that respects each other. So behaviors and attitudes that are punishable have to be identified beforehand and Again, I would do this like every season. This isn't something that like you open a brand new studio, you make the rules, you put them on the wall and you don't worry about it again. I repeat this context, this conversation every year. New things come up. There's different people. There's different dynamics. Maybe you learned some lessons from previous years that you now want to implement, but it should be a constant conversation. And bringing the dancers into the conversation really helps uh, kind of, again, them take ownership of it and is gonna make them feel more uh, inclined to agree with it and to follow the rules. Second guideline, be consistent by giving everyone the same type of punishment for breaking a similar rule. Nothing destroys a team cohesion faster than quote favorites and unfairly enforced punishments. I think many of us understand this, whether it's a team or a studio, again, it doesn't matter. We know what favorites looks like. Maybe you were the favorite, maybe you were not. And I think I've experienced both. I've had uh, some times in my dance career where I was more in favor and I got all the good things that came with it. And then I had other areas where I was definitely not the favorite and it doesn't feel good and it creates a horrible culture. But what happens with favorites is you end up with unfairly enforced punishments where the favorite dancer doesn't have the same consequence as another dancer. So even if it's your best dancer, and actually, especially when it's your best dancer, you have to enforce those punishments. You know, uh, one short story, I as a high school coach, there was a time when my captain who I really liked, I will be honest, I try not to have favorites, but I did really like her as a person and as a leader, but she made a choice and broke the code of conduct that was true according to like the larger school athletic policy. There were very clear consequences of losing the role of captain. Like we had established this, it was school rules, our team had talked about it. If you break this code, you are no longer a leader on the program. When this captain that I really liked broke the rule, broke my heart. Like I was so heartbroken for myself, for the team. I was disappointed and I was honestly trying to find a way out of it of like what kind of other circumstance could we say was at play or how do we fix this so I don't lose the leader that I want to keep but ultimately it's hard but you have to follow through and she did lose her role as captain but the team respected that that's what needed to happen it was a lot more 
uh, it was a lot easier for us to kind of move forward after that and say she apologized to the team, she took her consequence and we moved on. And she was actually still able to have a decent leadership role, not formally, but by you know putting in the effort and practice and still being a positive role model, even though she lost her, her role as a captain. And that one hurt, right? But even if it's your your leader, your best dancer, and especially in that context, you have to enforce it equally, no matter who that dancer is. Another important guideline is to punish the behavior and not the person. So when you talk to your athlete about the mistake, you can talk about your disappointment in the behavior or that you're upset about their choice, but not that you are mad at the dancer as a person. It's all about language, but that language is super important. So here's one key thing I would love for you to remember. What you say becomes their inner voice. I'm going to say that again. What you say to your dancers becomes their inner voice. If they constantly hear, I can't believe you did this. I'm so mad at you. How could you do this to our team? That becomes their inner voice. I'm such a terrible dancer. How, I'm a horrible teammate. How could I have ruined this for everyone? As opposed to, I'm really disappointed in your choice last weekend or... You know, I'm I'm frustrated by this behavior, but I know you're a better person than that. Like I, I need, it's the behavior that you want to change, not the person. Again, it's, it's subtle in language, but it makes all the different psychological difference. So impose punishment impersonally. You're not berating the person or yelling at them. It's informing the person of their punishment. And it's about the behavior or that choice, not about who they are as a person. Another important guideline, number four, do not use physical activity as punishment. I see this all the time in sports and dance teams too, right? Where it's, we use punishments or, or sorry, we use things like push-ups to, uh, if they are breaking the rules or running a mile as punishment or demerits are common in school teams. And then those demerits add up to, you know, you have to do, um, something to get rid of them. That is often a physical punishment, but think about this for athletes These types of conditioning activities, having good cardio training, having good physical strength should be common practice. They should be expected and dare I say, actually maybe an enjoyable part of your training, right? Our our bodies are our instrument. We are part of our job and our role as dancers is to increase our physical capabilities. And so if using physical training is a punishment, then you're creating this terrible message to the dancers, right? You're using physical punishment and that will mean that anytime you do these activities as part of your normal physical training, you start to invoke feelings of annoyance or anger or despair of like, oh, we gotta do it again, right? They don't want that. But you never want that during your actual training. So don't use those physical trainings as part of a punishment because then like what happens when you send them off to go run a mile because somebody was late to practice? Well, they spend that entire mile ruminating about how mad they are at the person who did it, how unfair it is being mad at you, but you're creating this negative self-talk around an activity uh, that maybe not running a mile, but some sort of conditioning activity like should be part of our training as dancers, right? So if it's part of your regular training regimen, it should not be a punishment. You gotta keep those things separate. Physical activity as punishment creates the wrong message when physical training is uh, what we do. Okay, next guideline. Make sure punishment is not perceived as a reward or as attention. And I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but it's an important guideline to think about that when you consider a punishment, you know, whatever you consider to be the punishment may not be a punishment to them. So take sitting out, for example. 
this happens a lot. I see it in school teams or even, you know, in studio stuff. It's like, you are not allowed to practice today. So you, you have to sit out for some reason because you broke a rule. But you have to consider that may not actually be a punishment to them. Maybe it's a relief. And I know for a lot of us, maybe you're the type of dancer where like, if I ever had to sit out, I would have been, you know, so upset and I would have been, it would have been the worst punishment. But that's not how everybody feels. So for some, maybe that ability to sit out is actually a relief because they didn't know that routine very well, or they didn't feel confident in it, or they, maybe they thought they were going to embarrass themselves doing that routine. So breaking a rule so that they sat out puts it on you and not them. They didn't have to say that they were worried about it. They're like, oh, see, coach is so mean. Now I have to sit. But in reality, they're actually relieved. Yeah. So sometimes punishment that you might perceive as a punishment is actually a reward to the dancer. You have to consider their point of view. And it might actually mean a conversation, right, of how they feel about it and what would truly be a punishment that's appropriate for the behavior. Next guideline, don't embarrass individuals in front of teammates or classmates. And embarrassment destroys culture. And I definitely experienced this a lot in the ballet world more than some of the other areas of my own dance training and partially because that was just embedded in the culture that you know if you can't handle that complicated petit allegro combination you got berated in front of everybody else or if you were wearing the wrong color or your hair fell down uh, you know I those sorts of small seemingly small things but they were dealt with by embarrassing you in front of class when you do that, you're creating this, again, negative culture where learning becomes impossible. So, you know, if an athlete makes a mistake that is actually worthy of apologizing for, then they can apologize to the whole team and make it be a team conversation, but berating that person in front of that team only causes further damage. So back to that captain story I said earlier, like when she brought up her mistake to the team, she owned it, she took her consequence which then meant she didn't lose friends and they still trusted her on the team because she owned her mistake and apologized. This is kind of my mistakes mantra that I use with my dancers, with my with my own children, right? Mistakes are okay, but you have to own it, apologize and make it right. And there's no reason for embarrassment to become a part of that. And when I talk about kind of the embarrassing in my uh, stories of my own ballet career, those I don't think were areas where punishment was necessarily it wasn't going to help. It wasn't going to do anything. If you are, if you're wearing the wrong thing, if your hair falls out, like yelling at you in front of everybody is not going to make you more likely to do that in the future. Or if it does, it only creates that fear again. So making sure that that sort of team embarrassment or class embarrassment is not a part of the culture. Guideline number seven, use punishment sparingly, but enforce it when you use it. So this is again, that kind of broad picture of like, you have to use punishment sparingly it shouldn't happen all the time because there's other ways to get the behavior change but when you do need to use it enforce it and you have to enforce it equally every time of year whether it's you know a first couple weeks of the season or you are one week away from the biggest competition of the year if the same behavior deserves the same punishment and that gets really tricky because you're like no but we've worked so hard and we're only one week from this huge competition and now if i have to punish this dancer the way we said we would it's going to hurt everybody else yeah it is and it's terrible and i've definitely been there and i think that's a story for another time but i've had to make those horrible decisions where this punishment needs to happen i have to follow through and it's gonna be so upsetting to me and to all these other dancers, but you have to enforce it equally. 
Finally, the best punishments, the most effective, I should say, are those that will make the dancer better at what they were having a problem with in the first place. Right? So if you can align the punishment that is appropriate with whatever the problem was. So say, you know, a school dancer asks to you know, leave the basketball game early because they have to study for a test the next day that they're not prepared for, right? They have a time management issue and you have rules that like we are here for the entire game and they ask to leave early. Well, maybe you let them leave because they need to be prepared for that test. But then tomorrow they are not participating in practice and they have to write out their school calendar and homework plan for the next week and show it to you to prove that it won't happen again. That type of punishment or like, okay, what was the real issue here? It was a time management issue. How can we make the punishment relevant to that and not uh, something that necessarily hurts everybody else or a physical punishment or something like that? So the, the most effective punishments when you have to use them are something that will actually make them better at whatever they were having a problem with. Again, if the issue was mental focus and that's why they made a mistake on stage, having something to do with learning about that mental focus is going to be much more effective than embarrassing them or pulling them, you know, causing that kind of mental stress and psychological effect. So the balance of punishment here is how often, right? And I said use it sparingly, but what does that really mean? So use it when code of conduct or moral issues arise or boundaries are crossed, right? You can't let them get away with disrespect or it snowballs out of control. But you should also consider the positive side of this, like how you communicate when you're not punishing them <laughs> changes how well they respond to punishment. So I'm gonna share a little research with you here, but stick with me. This is research about what they call like the exemplar coach. A group of researchers uh, went and watched the kind of iconic college basketball coach, John Wooden. He coached for UCLA, won 10 national basketball championships in 11 years. He has written some of the most wonderful books on leadership. If you're interested, check those out. But these groups of researchers followed him and his team for about like 30 hours worth of practice. And they like documented coaches' behaviors. They wanted to see how much time was spent how his time was spent with the team. How much did he punish? How much did he use praise? And I think these results are super interesting. 50% of his coaching was instruction. It was like teaching the actual skills of basketball. If you add in the time he spent demonstrating or modeling, it was 75% of his coaching. He seldom used praise. It was less than 7%. He didn't throw it around all the time, right? But it had to be well-deserved and the athletes knew how he felt through other actions. But when something was really, uh, you know, especially worthy of praise, it happened. In the 30 hours worth of coaching they watched, there was no punishment, absolutely none. And practice always ended with affection. And we're talking about a group of men in the 70s, right? So that's kind of important to understand the context. And, you know, the developmental level of player is relevant here. Like these were college men at the absolute height of their game. So if you are coaching or you're teaching much younger dancers, the amount of praise goes up, right? Research shows how much praise at those younger ages is super important. But the point is that his coaching was mostly instruction, like what to do and how to do it, which is I think what most of us as dance teachers would like our teaching to be. Like if class was 75% what to do to how to do it, right? And then you encourage effort and intensity above that. Rarely, if ever, focus on, you know, winning or the competitive side, but instead emphasizing like doing the best you can because that's all you can do, but you're gonna do the best you can at all times, right? With the best effort. So think about your own teaching. 
And I've done this with some private coaching clients and I will encourage you to challenge yourself uh, if you're teaching a class or, you know, uh, cleaning up a routine or something, challenge yourself to like audio record even 20, 30 minutes of a class and like write down what you said and see where you fall. Are you giving instruction, you know, 75% of the time? And is the rest of it that kind of motivational, encouraging, we got this, keep going, you know, fight for it more, right? Those uh, encouraging, uplifting moments. Are you, how much of it is negative? So you can take that challenge for yourself. It's, I will admit, a little weird to audio tape yourself and go back and listen to it. It's a little scary, but it's super educational and it can give you a lot of insight. So throughout your career as a dance educator, you know, circumstances will arise where punishment feels necessary, right? It's going to happen. And if done properly, considering all these kind of guidelines we went through, staying in alignment with your own teaching philosophy, with your own leadership style, like you can use punishment very rarely and still have the disciplined, self-motivated dancers that you want to work with. I hope this gives you a new understanding of punishment, maybe helps you rethink your approach a little bit. Uh, But again, this is not a one-size-fits-all issue. It's not something you just do without thought and blindly, you know, do whatever disciplinary approach was used when you were a dancer. This takes conscious effort to really consider what fits you and your style and your level of dancers. I hope you'll join me each week to learn more about sports psychology, how it can help you grow as a dancer. And if this was helpful, please go leave a five-star review so I can reach more dancers and support our community. And while you're at it, take a second to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening and keep sharing your passion for dance with the world.